Hello and welcome to The Chris Rawl Show. I am Chris Rawl. I've been run through the emotional ringer over the last few days. We have college football in full force. We have the NFL in full force. I had kind of forgotten how good both of these sports can be, and especially when working in unison with one another. Week two of college football was sensational, as was week one of the NFL. So here we are. Uh, I am recording two shows per week. As you know, I am writing a newsletter per week. As you know, you are not subscribed to either one of those things. You need to go and do that right now. Do it on a podcast platform of your choosing. Chris Rawl Show can be found anywhere there. You go to chrisrawl.com. You can also access any of my podcasts. You can obviously sign up for my newsletter there. There's a subscribe button. Put your email into it. And every Wednesday morning, you'll be getting something about college football or the NFL for the next four months. And then after that, probably even more football because that's the thing we should always be talking about. So a lot is on my mind. You know that Tuesdays in football season, they are about the margins. And that is what I'm going to be diving into today for, again, a sensational week two of the college football season and a sensational week one of the NFL season. Let's go. We are officially back. We have the NFL. We have college. They are both going full bore. It is it is a good time to be alive in those senses. Now, quick sidebar. It's not great to be a fan of the two teams I'm a fan of. However, there's kind of a rite of passage of both the college football season and the NFL season. And I would say it's not really officially football season until the Packers have been inexplicably obliterated in week one and the Nebraska Cornhuskers in college have waved the white flag on the season, usually around the start of September. Both of those things, right on on target, right on point, right on time. Uh, Nebraska fires Scott Frost on Sunday morning. Green Bay just wallows in the mud for four quarters against the Minnesota Vikings. I'm not going to talk a ton about either one of those two things. I probably will. Well, I will be diving into the Nebraska thing at some point. Today's not the day. Um, The Green Bay thing, I think it's a work in progress. Again, I don't think there's too much analysis that's going to come out of that game beyond just the creeping fear that I have that the Green Bay Packers receiver room is eight thumbs down and barring an incredible progression from either Christian Watson, who dropped a lock-in touchdown on the first play from scrimmage for Green Bay, or Romeo Dubs. I'm a little bit apprehensive about this team being able to win a Super Bowl with the receiver room as it is currently constructed. Again, those are both topics or other days. Uh, I don't think those were anywhere near the most interesting things that occurred on the field this weekend. Nebraska getting bombed by Georgia Southern and Green Bay getting bombed by Vikings. Okay, interesting in certain ways. Not anywhere near the very best things that occurred on a football field over the last few days. So we've checked both boxes. Football season's underway. Um, And I would kind of say that there's probably a third box that we need to check that I will do so now on today's show. Because the other thing that really boots football season into eighth gear is when I start screaming from the mountaintops that A, football is the best sport, which it is, and B, that football is a complex team sport consisting of offense and defense and special teams and coaching and referees and weather and so on and so forth. Now, that's what the margin shows are all about. Uh, I could record a Tuesday show every day about let's just talk about Justin Herbert because he's a total badass and Patrick Mahomes or Rogers or Brady or Bryce Young in college or pick your poison. 
which is what a lot of football coverage is about. And, and I like that too. You know, I consume a lot of quarterback coverage. I talk about quarterbacks a lot on this show. I usually do so probably in a little bit different way than you will see on your Monday morning NFL recap shows. And I, I mentioned this weekend was awesome. You know that because I'm sure you consumed a lot of football like myself. I'm recording this before Broncos Seahawks on Monday night, which I presume will be a immense thriller. And I apologize for not being able to talk about that. But as of this recording, the football weekend ended with a complete dud on Sunday night. The Bucks and the Cowboys, and a matchup that looked really appetizing going in. It was not. It was the furthest thing from it. But I do think it's a great place to start before I get to the handful of games that I really want to talk about. The ones that I think were truly entertaining and represented the best of what these sports have to offer. This is where we start <laughs> Chris Rall screaming from the mountaintops. Because I think this game was a really, it's a clear window. It's a great microcosm of the career of Tom Brady, who's a great quarterback, who's awesome. Never argued against that, never will. It'd be absurd to say otherwise. But it's also very representative of how you need to win. Brady last night, he made some really high-level passes, missed some others, threw a bad interception. None of that really mattered. What mattered was the Bucks' defense was flying around and the Cowboys couldn't block. Ended up getting Dak Prescott injured, who's now out for about two months. Leonard Fournette was awesome. He looked like Leonard Fournette from LSU. Chris Collinsworth was talking about this. Oh, man. Well, Chris Collinsworth in his weird smoker voice last night. I don't know what that was about, but he was raving about just how spry Fournette looked. And, I mean, it was kind of incredible. Two years ago, I thought this guy was almost out of the league. He was on his Ezekiel Elliott last legs. Now Zeke's kind of in the same place and Fournette looks reborn. He looks like he looked at LSU. He's just fast and physical. And anytime anyone wants to tackle him, he's like, you need to get three of your friends because I'm going to plaster through you for five extra yards. Fournette's well over 100 yards. They just control the ball. Dallas can't move. Ryan Suckup boots a bunch of field goals for Tampa. They win 19-3. You know, if you watch the game, you wouldn't sit there and go, oh, what an incredible offensive performance. You wouldn't look at Brady and go, oh, what an incredible game for him. Again, a reasonable game. I'm not sitting here saying it was atrocious. He made some really good passes. Made some others that, okay, whatever. He got pressured more than he liked. And on those plays, we know Tom Brady's not really going to stay afloat. And he handed off to a toeback that was really good and paired that with a defense that was A+. So before we get into... um a few more games from the weekend. And before we get in really into the margins, I actually want to read two paragraphs that come from, it's an article that I read a couple of weeks ago and I just haven't had the right time to talk about it. And I, I think today is a good kind of insertion as we start talking about the margins by talking about quarterbacks, which are front and center at the discussion of everything. But I think these two paragraphs are perfect to segue into the nitty gritty, the nuance of football. Uh, it comes from Mike Sando at The Athletic, who's a really good writer and uh, I think sees football in terms of how I see football. So these are two different paragraphs from Mike Sando. Tom Brady reached 13 conference championship games and nine Super Bowls during 19 seasons with the New England Patriots. The three other quarterbacks with the strongest Hall of Fame credentials over the past quarter century, Peyton Manning, Aaron Rodgers, and Drew Brees, Failed to match those totals, even if we combine their career exploits with the Indianapolis Colts, Green Bay Packers, and New Orleans Saints, respectively. There is no discounting Brady's greatness in the critical moments. 
but the biggest factor differentiating his career from the careers of those other three legends was not some magic clutch gene. No, the biggest difference was the Patriots' ability through Brady's time with the team to field strong units on defense and special teams. Franchise's ability to do this while also employing a top quarterback is the difference between winning games and regularly contending for championships. That is a very big difference. That's my own insertion. And then this is the second paragraph. The Chargers franchise history is instructive. Their greatest quarterback, Dan Fouts, directed an offense that led the league in scoring from 1978 to 1987, but he never even reached a Super Bowl, largely because his Chargers ranked 27th out of 28 teams over that span in scoring defense. Up the California coast in San Francisco, Joe Montana directed an offense that led the league in scoring from 1981 to 1990. He won four Super Bowls. A leading reason, San Francisco led the league in scoring defense over those years. End quote. Again, there is a lot that goes into football. One of the themes that I am continually trumpeting in my everyday life when I talk to people about football, and especially when I take a bunch of notes and get some stats and think about what I watched over the weekend and come and record this show on Tuesday. So I think that's a good place to start. Something to keep in mind as football season continues. I'll offer a nice cordial please and thank you as I probably talk about this 600 more times between now and when the national champion is crowned in January and when the Super Bowl champion is crowned in February. As you know, Tuesday's show during football season pertains to the margins. It is what I'm fascinated by. It is what I think about. It is what I am both enthralled and driven insane by as a gambler and a fan. It's the razor-thin difference between winning or losing a football game. It's the millions of things that go into swaying the outcome, and it is the absurdity of how we talk about a game or a season or a career strictly in terms of wins and losses. That's what Tuesdays in fall are about. That's what this show is about. So we love to talk about quarterbacks and offense, and I do too. Again, I love talking about those things, and I will continue to do so. And then a weekend like what we just were a part of passes, and a ton of games come down to referees and kickers. <laughs> it's a weird, it's kind of a weird part of the sport. Uh, and, and I get it, you know, those are not sexy topics to talk about, but they are very true in altering the outcomes. And if we connect the lines of logic and say, oh, we love talking about quarterbacks, especially in offenses and, and sometimes head coaches, and we really judge those things in terms of just wins and losses, these binary black and white terms, it makes it a little bit weirder when we watch all these games and go, oh, there's maybe a lot that is not controlled by the quarterback or by the offense or by the head coach. These are all pieces in a puzzle. I'm actually kind of convinced. This is another sidebar. I'm kind of convinced that ESPN should start a TV show about this particular subject, the margins, or, you know, you have your Monday morning quarterbacking and everybody gets on and talks about how Joe Burrow played and how Justin Herbert played and who's better and how did Bryce Young play and how did Stetson Bennett play and who's better. And I think they should start a show that's Monday morning ref or Monday morning kicker. And they just talk about these stupid things. It would probably be boring as hell and everybody would hate it. Uh, kind of how sometimes I think people get overwhelmed by me talking about the margins. They're just like, we just want to know if you think Aaron Rodgers is better than Tom Brady. Well, I think Aaron Rodgers is better than Tom Brady. But at the same time, the reason that I think that is because of just 
narrowing it down to how good are you as a quarterback? One small cog in an, an immense machine. So the storylines that have emerged from the weekend in, in both college and the NFL, they're endless. They're awesome. Again, there's a lot of places that you can go to find really high-level analysis that's interesting and informed and pertinent to what is happening in either one of those sports. You know, the Sun Belt pantses all the big schools on Saturday. Probably the talking point coming out of that day. Marshall blasting, or not blasting, but kind of relatively easily handling Notre Dame and Appalachian State going into Texas A&M and beating them. And unfortunately, Nebraska uh, getting pantsed on their home field by Georgia Southern. A team that was 3-9 and nine a year ago that overhauled their coaching staff that has been running the triple option for all of time. They brought in Clay Helton, who was fired in week two of last year, strange but true, uh, from his job at USC, hired in the offseason takeover Georgia Southern, revamped their entire offense. So we're talking about a triple option team that was three and nine a year ago with a completely new offensive system. They're trying to this air out attack, and they come in and score 45 points. They gain 640 yards. It's just, it's another storyline amongst these endless storylines. Nebraska returns to its perpetual state of crisis which again, I will talk about. I don't want to dive too deep in today because as soon as I start talking about it, it makes me angry and sad and frustrated and all those things. So we'll move on. Another storyline, maybe Anthony Richardson is not the Heisman Trophy winner. Maybe beating Utah in a game that was back and forth and entertaining, having to follow that up against a really good Kentucky team that, hey, Mark Stoops, I would love if you came and coached Nebraska, by the way. (laughs) Uh, maybe, Maybe we can't award the Heisman in week one. Maybe Alabama is mortal. Maybe Texas is closer than we think. There's so many things, right? And all of these are valid. All of these are real. All of these are great things to talk about. And, and actually, I will talk more about Alabama and Texas in a second. But I think the perfect place to start today's show is the, the Saturday night capper game. BYU-Baylor, two top 25 teams. Tight, hard fought, two really similar teams. They're very physical, buttoned up teams that I, I greatly enjoy watching. Nobody was gaining an edge at any point through the game. It was just, again, physical, 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 physical football. Stuff that I really like. And yet, the game ends. BYU wins in double overtime. And I just keep, somehow, I, I keep thinking about kickers. <laughs> I go, man, it's pretty crazy. The potential swings in both narrative and season outcomes based upon the kicking game will never cease to amaze me. I'm talking about just the, the emotional component of how fans feel about their program. And you get to the end of the season and you're like, okay, nine and three just has a different ring from eight and four. And eight and four has a different ring from seven and five and so on and so forth. Either way, me as a gambler, a person who would bet the under on Baylor this season, I'm going, this is the gates games like this that are going to decide whether or not I'm way excited for cashing a Baylor ticket or I'm way upset going, I think I was on the right side, but they won this because BYU's kicker, Jake Oldroyd, couldn't make a field goal. He has a, he has a kick at the end of regulation to win. He biffs it. He has a kick in the first overtime to win. He biffs it. Baylor kicker, Isaiah Hankins. He misses an extra point in regulation. That's partially how you're getting into overtime. He has a field goal the first part of overtime or the first possession of the first overtime to put Baylor up by three. He misses it, setting up Oldroyd for the potential game winner, which he then misses. It's just back and forth and back and forth. And each time something would happen, I'm like, oh my gosh, is this, is this how my underbet is going to be swung? 
Baylor fans are sitting there going, if we win, we're going to feel great. We went on the road and beat a top 25 team. BYU fans are sitting there going, if we win, we're feeling great. We welcomed a top 10 team into our home stadium. Granted, we were three-point favorites, but at the same time, you know, we proved that we belong with this team that kind of roughhoused us last year. The last two and a half quarters of Baylor-BYU last year was really rough for that program that takes a, a really prideful approach on, hey, we've transformed how physical we are. You know, this is not just kind of your old throw it around the yard BYU and maybe we didn't want to punch people in the mouth as much. This is the identity of this team and they showed that again in this game. Now, I would say they showed that in this game regardless of whether or not they won or lost, but there's always the added boost that comes from kickers miss, kickers miss, kickers miss. BYU scores a touchdown in the second overtime, doesn't get the two, has a nice goal line stand, game over. Now BYU storm in the field. And again, we have these offshoots in both narrative and season outcomes that are derived from this game. You can look across this sport, you can look across the NFL, and you want to talk about just what these games come down to and how kickers always play an outsized role. Go and ask the Tennessee Titans. Randy Bullock lines up for a potential game winner against the Giants, who'd had to convert on fourth down on their game, what ended up being a game-winning touchdown drive. Daniel Jones converts it. They score a touchdown. They decide to go for two with under a minute to go to go up by one. Saquon Barkley gets it on a shovel pass. Tannehill zips him down the field, throws just a dime from, they're about midfield. He throws about a 30, uh, it's about a 25-yarder probably. Just a out down the left side. I mean, a complete dime. As good of a pass as you can throw. And it's one of those things that if Bullock kicks it through the uprights, that Monday morning quarterbacking, you go, ah, you know, Tannehill in the clutch, man. What a throw. Yeah, he threw those three picks against Cincy last year in the playoffs, and that was bad and pretty much kind of cost him the game. But he's got a lot of talent, and man, when they needed him to show up in week one, he showed up. Bullet comes in, boots it, misses left. Titans lose, Giants win. Win totals, going up, going down, emotional uh, fandom components, uh, narratives, all of these just swaying in the wind based on kicking. Ask the Browns. The Baker Mayfield return game, well, the Browns are going to Carolina, but he's returning to play his old team. That game's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Comes down to a 58-yard field goal. Cade York, the Browns kicker, makes it. The Browns win. Baker's sad in his battle against his former team. If he misses it, it's a Baker Mayfield celebration. He comes in, drills it. 58-yarder. Long-ass kick. Swings and narrative. Swings and wins and losses. Swings and how invested fans are how they're feeling about the season in general panthers fans are sitting there going ah fire map you know they lose another game and it's fire mat rule they're one and oh and they go and win next week suddenly you're sitting there going okay we got something here with baker i mean it's just it's it's mind-numbing how quickly things can change based upon the margins now there are two games that i think are most befitting of a more in-depth examination of the margins themselves. One from college, Alabama, Texas. One from the NFL, Steelers, Bengals. Uh, Alabama, Texas, I would say it wasn't the most entertaining game on Saturday, but it was pretty high up there. Steelers, Bengals was in a landslide. (laughs) Everything that you could possibly pound into an NFL game times about 3 million for why it is as compelling a sport that exists. So we start on Saturday. Um, Alabama's going in. They're 21 and a half point. This is by kickoff. 21 and a half point favorites 
on the road. Steve Sarkeesian, coach in Texas, former Alabama coordinator with Saban. A lot of storylines. Texas trying to come back. Alabama just business as usual, maintain the throne as they've done for the last almost 15 years, that kind of stuff. There's the added component of Quinn Ewers, who's one of the highest rated quarterback recruits in the last 15 years who signed with Texas. Well, transferred to Texas from Ohio State, where he had just done a brief hiatus last year, didn't really play any meaningful snaps. Nobody really watched him last week because they're playing University of Louisiana Monroe. So this was the first debut on the big stage. I was pretty intrigued to watch him just because I knew the hype surrounding him. And oh, baby, did he live up to the billing. Before he leaves with a clavicle injury that's now going to keep him out at least until the Oklahoma game, which is about a month from now, October 8th. He's 9 for 12 for 135 yards against Bama's defense. And it wasn't just those stats, which you're averaging over 10 yards in temp. Hell yeah. It was the quality of throws that were being made, including one of those incompletions, which was 50 yards downfield, right on the money to the receiver, Xavier Worthy, who dropped the football once he hit the ground. I mean, it was a dime. It was so good. And every pass I was watching was like, okay, I'm quite intrigued by what is occurring here. Me, a person who bet Texas to win the Big 12 this year, was suddenly really intrigued. I was also... Very invested in this game from a betting standpoint because I took Texas plus 14 in the first half. I took Texas 21 for the game. And now I'm going, okay. You know, I just, I was looking at it more from a gambling perspective. I wasn't expecting Texas to be able to hang around because I go, they just don't have the depth. They don't have the defense. We've seen their defense. Oh, okay. I think Quinn Ewers maybe can keep them in it for a while and at the very least is going to cover these margins. That's what I'm hoping for. And instead... His first handful of drives was just like, so I think you guys look like Alabama's peer, which was freaking intense to comprehend in the first quarter. And and again, I'm tempering my expectations and enthusiasm because I'm just like, well, this is one quarter. You know, I had the same feeling last year when Florida was taking Alabama down to the wire in the swamp in September and had a two point conversion to tie right at the end of the game. Didn't get it. And we know how Florida season last year went. Their coach was fired before <laughs> by the end of the year. Texas going in to tie the game, and Quinn Ewers gets drilled, driven in the ground. Looks like he breaks his collarbone, separates his shoulder, something along those lines. We now know it's a clavicle sprain. Point of the story is, first big margin play of the game. The quarterback who looked absolutely sensational. Again, very small sample size. Not saying he would have thrown for 400 yards and three touchdowns with no picks, but he looked like he belonged. And as soon as you see something like that, on a team that you know has talent, but has, for whatever reason, not been able to channel it properly. The quarterback position, that's the one thing that you go, okay, if you have this position, a lot of things are going to coalesce around that within the college game. Actually, within the NFL game as well. And suddenly your ceiling is raised because you have something at the most important position. Instead, they have to bring in Hudson Card, who is not very good, who also got injured in the game and was hobbling around. To his credit, he got it through that and was pretty damn reasonable all things considered. Now, it's 10-10 right near the end of the second half. Steve Sarkeesian, I'm kind of torn about criticism and just giving him tons of props for what occurred in this game. It lies somewhere in the midst of those, which is pretty much how you can grade every performance that occurs in football. Some to like, some that you didn't like. I think his game planning was A++, especially when yours was in. You could just tell the script he had was designed to take advantage of what Ewers offers and what the flaws of the Alabama defense are. 
especially them being able to cover down the field. But it's 10-10 near the end of the second half. There's one play left. There's three seconds to go. Texas has the ball at the three-yard line of Alabama. And this is, I'm not saying this is a gimme. This is a total, most people, if you're saying you should go for a touchdown there, I think it would be a hindsight call. This is just one thing to note. And I'm always of the mindset of, if you are a big underdog, if you do not think you have a better team than the other team, you're playing in Alabama, if you're playing in Georgia, if you're playing on Ohio State, I would always prefer the inferior team to be aggressive and say, eh, we're going to force the issue. We're not going to sit back and say, let's just move this along as far as possible and hope that they mess up. Instead, I like the, let's just, you know, let's try some trick plays. Let's be aggressive on fourth down. When we have opportunities to try and score touchdowns, let's try. And Sarkeesian was the opposite of that. He decided to kick a field goal there, which again, I think most coaches would do. I'm not saying this as a hindsight play. I'm saying it's one of many coaching decisions in this game where Tex was continually settling for field goals over and over and over and over and over again that I think came back to bite him in the ass because they were playing the Alabama Crimson Tide and they let them hang around long enough. So they attempt a field goal from the three-yard line instead of saying, let's try and go for a touchdown. If we don't get it, it's 10-10. If we get it, that's an incredible momentum boost going into the half. They have the added just death toll of mangled snap kicker just hooks the piss out of it they don't even get the field goal <laughs> 20 yard field goal on the last play of the first half no good so now it's 10 10 you just shanked a field goal and you have that kind of emotional uh drain of like uh we should have just gone for it on fourth down one thing but it, it's a combination of coaching and special teams it's a decision that a coach makes which Sometimes you're aggressive and it bites you in the ass. Go and ask Scott Frost about kicking an onside kick against Northwestern in week zero. How that worked out for Nebraska. You know, some people like to be the hindsight of whenever it goes awry, they say you're a complete dumbass and oh, you should be fired and you cost your team the game. And when it works, they go, this person's a genius and let's give him a high five. I'm much more process oriented on this front. That's why I like, I'm, I'm into how Brandon Staley coaches with the Chargers. And when everybody pats them on the back because they go four for four on fourth downs and it swings a game, I kind of chuckle. And when everybody, the entire media just says this is the worst coach ever when they go for it on their own side of the field against the Raiders last year in the last week of the regular season and don't get it and it leads to Raiders points and they say he's a complete dumbass, I chuckle. All these things go into a football game. There's so many things that happen. I mean, this is the first half. We're still tied. We're going to the second half, and now I'm starting to go, okay, Texas kind of looks like they belong. Their defense has been incredible so far. They've really, a team that a week ago looked like they had no weaknesses in Alabama. Now I'm sitting there going, they look like last year's Alabama. They look like they can't block again. And they're really struggling down the field with a collection of receivers that I just don't know who was standing up. At least last year they had Jamison Williams and John Mechie before both of them got injured. This year, it's just, I don't know who's making that play downfield. And nobody made a play downfield the whole game. And Bryce Young was just back there running for his life. And he'd throw it to somebody and they'd drop it. And then he wouldn't have time and he'd have to flush out of the pocket. So now I'm going, all right, this Texas team is, they look kind of good, even without Quinn Ewers. And Hudson Card's just duffing around. Then the refs, I mean, Alabama has 15 penalties called against them in this game. It could have been 25. I mean, it's weird to say that they're missing calls in a game where it seems like they were calling everything. And yet you watch it and you go, there's just a bunch more penalties that were left in the field. I'm not sure what was going on with Alabama in this game, but just completely uh, undisciplined from that perspective, including an enormous missed face mask 
on a Texas run that would have set them up first and goal inside the three-yard line, which instead led to Texas kicking a field goal immediately. Pretty big swing play when you're thinking, okay, there's a decent chance that could have cost us four points. We got three cracks to get three yards, and instead we're booting a field goal. There's the most insane refereeing play of the season so far when it's tied at 10s, and Texas just blasts through Alabama's line with them backed up. It looks like they sack Bryce Young. At the very least, it looks like he intentionally grounds the ball in the end zone. Sure, safety, I'm celebrating because I'm like, sweet, 12-10, getting the ball back. This is going to be, this could be an immense, an immense swing. And then they rule that, oh, there's roughing the passer and there's targeting. So now I'm going, oh my gosh, this is going to be a huge mistake. And then it's showing the replay. There's no roughing the passer and there's no targeting, not within 500 miles of either one of those things. And then we're seeing maybe Bryce Young wasn't even down, but then you're going, but he still intentionally grounded the ball. And, and then you're going, well, he duffed it off the guy's helmet. So can you call intentional grounding? And I'm going, this is a clear safety. But now it seems like Texas is, it, it was on third down. And so now it seems like they've given them a, a new opportunity at, to first town. The two points are off the board. The refs come back and go, actually, we misspoke. There wasn't roughing the passer, which is a non-reviewable play. And there wasn't targeting, but it wasn't a safety. Uh, let's, just, let's just punt and kind of forget about this. That was essentially what it was. It's a great point of frustration for me that we review plays and it takes five minutes and it sucks the life out of every game that it's a part of. And it happened two more times during this game in the fourth quarter. And I remarked to the person I was watching with just like, why do we have this involved? Everybody's fired up in these, it's just bang, bang. And then we're getting ready for the next play. And then they go, hold on, let's, let's measure this thing real fast. And it takes five minutes and you just sit there and you go, why is this a part of the sport? And then you have a play like this where it takes five minutes and it sucks life out of the entire game. And they come back and decide, you know what? We can probably discern what happened on replay, but maybe we can review this. Maybe we can't. Let's just make up explanations. And at the end of the day, let's just pretend like none of this ever happened. And I go, why do we review these? Why do we review these? It's coming down to the end of the game. Bama's up one. There's under four minutes to go. They have a fourth and inches at the Texas 25. Swing play for a coach. You could kick a field goal. You're up by four. You can go for it to really try and milk the clock out, potentially end the game just by running the clock out or at the very least set yourself up for a closer field goal or potentially a touchdown to go up by eight. I would always say go for it. That's what Saban did. What's crazy is they go into shotgun on fourth and inches. This is, this is the crusty football old man in me. And I know announcers rail on this and it's the one area that I always kind of agree where I'm just like, this is absurd. They always talk about the, you know, these younger quarterbacks, they don't, they don't practice snaps under center. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> There's no way that that's true. There's no way it's true that these quarterbacks cannot take a snap under center. I refuse to believe it. I honestly do. You could practice it 10 times and you're ready to go. You can't tell me that Bryce Young has taken shotgun snaps all of his life and never, ever, ever, ever practiced a snap under center to the point where he's not comfortable taking a snap and just pushing forward and getting literal inches to extend Alabama's drive. They go in shotgun. They run it. Looks like it gets stuffed. Goes to review. This was after review on the play prior where they're going, maybe it's a first down, maybe not. We can't tell. Takes five minutes. They go to another review. Takes five minutes. They go, maybe, I don't know. Let's just, again, this is how this game was in part decided. 
So they say, it's, uh, we think the ball's here. Let's bring out the chain gang. My favorite thing. Sport that has limitless technology at its disposal. They have chips and players' pads tracking how fast they're running and what kind of ground they're covering and this type of, we have data on how many times the Nebraska Cornhuskers have run an 11 personnel on second down in the last three. Se- I mean, we have countless things at our disposal and how we measure fourth downs. Still, in 2022, it is 2022. It is not 1912 when this would be acceptable behavior. We have a couple older gentlemen run out with chains. One of them plants it in the ground on the other end. That Who knows how they determined where that point is. It's just running out onto a field and pretending like you know where the spot is. Then the other person pulls the chain and makes sure it's tight and let's see how close this is. It is insane. Texas holds. Leads to, you know... Two kicks that could swing the outcome of the game. Texas kicker drills a almost a 50-yarder. Great kick. Alabama comes back with the clock dwindling. Texas has an opportunity to sack Bryce Young. He makes an incredible play. That's a quarterback making a play. One of those ones that you can point out and go, you know what? Tip your cap to a, a guy who is freaking good. I don't think he's freaking good because he made this one slip sack in a game that statistically he struggled. He was kind of on the run for his life the entire game. Receivers did not help Bryce Young in this game. I think he's an incredible player in general. Again, not because he won this game, not because uh, he made this play. I just think you watch him every play and you go, this guy's a total badass. This was a quarterback making a play. Ducks a sack, runs for 20 yards, sets up the game on the foot of a kicker, comes down to Will Richard. Who wins and who loses? 33-yard field goal, you know? (laughs) It's funny looking back on Alabama the past, you know, earlier on the Saban era when they couldn't get a good kicker and they would win every game except for the ones that would come down to a kicker and they would lose those games. (laughs) And it was the funniest stone that was somehow not unturned or overturned because you're like, this seems like the easiest thing to get. Just go and get a good kicker. And the one game a season that comes down to this particular margin when it's the end of regulation or overtime and you need a 33 yarder, this guy will just come and drill. That's what Will Richard does. Alabama's learned their lesson. They're moving on. Texas has the moral victory. They have reasons to be optimistic. At the same time, this is how this game was won and lost. So now we shift to the NFL. AFC North, Cincinnati Bengals, last year's Super Bowl runner-up, Pittsburgh Steelers. Team with an extended track record under Mike Tomlin, being very, very good and competitive. Swapping out a decrepit, almost dead, Big Ben Roethlisberger for a less decrepit, not dead, but not good. Mitchell Trubisky. <laughs> TJ Watts injured in this game. Sucks because he was out of his mind. Tears his pec, I believe. I haven't seen that officially confirmed, but it seems like that's where it's headed. That's how seasons are altered. That's If he's out for an extended period of time, that is a huge blow to a defense that was A++ yesterday. I mean, they had, I think, seven sacks. They forced five turnovers. It was just, they probably had 822 quarterback pressures. It was just them going nonstop. He leaves right at the end of regulation, but this game, this game had everything. I mean, the Steelers win 23-20 in overtime. You just look at that and you go, oh, cool, close game. Does no justice to the margin plays that were involved with this game. The sheer emotional swings, the thrill of it as a viewer, the thrill of it as a gambler, when I have Steelers plus seven for the game and then come back with Cincinnati minus six in the second half, and just how both of those were, well, mainly the second half bet because the Steelers were holding them off throughout the second half. But 
The second half bet is then swinging on every single thing that's occurring in the last 10 minutes of regulation and overtime. The very the sheer variance of turnovers, which some of them were great plays by Pittsburgh. Some of them were just complete random weird stuff. You know, TJ Watt makes an incredible play that I also don't think is replicable where Burrow drops back and throws, tries to throw an out to the right-hand side and Watt jumps up to try and block it and somehow picks it off. It was an insane play. It was so good. The Bengals were minus five in turnovers in this game. They almost won. That is an almost incomprehensible stat. They should have won at multiple points. We're just going to fast forward to the end of the game because while you could write a novel about this 60 plus, well, 70 minutes of football, if you start with about three minutes to go, I think it's a really good place to start. The Bengals are down by six and they're on the move. Burrow throws a, just a laser on the left side. Burrow, who alternated between being atrocious and sensational and everything in between in this game and was just under duress from the very first snap until the very last snap, his offensive line, which is supposed to be improved, looked three times worse than last year or the year prior, which seems insane. Pittsburgh, they had the same thing going on. It was, if you were into offensive line play, this was not the game for you. If you were into thrills, this was. Because Burrow throws the out to Jamar Chase, who catches it. And I'm going, okay, that's a touchdown. Ref rules him out at the half-yard line. We're watching the replay, and he very, very clearly catches the ball, gets his right foot past the line, balls on his right hip as he's running out of bounds. It is a touchdown. So now I'm like, okay, sweet. You know, Zach Taylor's going to challenge it. It's very clearly a touchdown. You're going to discern that on replay. It's on the coach still because we're not under two minutes yet to throw out the challenge flag. Zach Taylor, for whatever reason, again, it's a small thing. In In a lot of instances, it's not going to come back and bite you in the ass. This is why I'll even mention these things when they don't. Because I'm like, this is something, if you're checking yourself as a coach, this is something you should go into film study and go, I biffed bad. And that's a slight, small thing that didn't hurt us this time, but could, down the road, blast us in a Super Bowl or in a playoff game or in a regular season game that's deciding whether or not we even make it to the playoffs. Zach Taylor does not throw the challenge flag for whatever reason. Again, it is a touchdown. Bengals should be tied kicking an extra point for the lead with under three minutes. But it's not going to hurt him because it's first and goal at the half-yard line, right? First play, Joe Mixon, stuff for a three-yard loss. Oh boy, here we go. Three plays later, incompletion in the back left-hand corner of the end zone, trying to fit it into Jamar Chase. I think it was Sutton, jumped up, blocked it down. Now they have no points. They're still down six. So now I'm like, oh my gosh, this is... Coaching rears its ugly head. Bengals hold, they get the ball back. We have another drive that's just... (laughs) There is a throw. It probably won't even be shown on highlights. I don't know. It wasn't... I mean, it wasn't a picture-perfect throw, but... Burrow rips just a liner down the right sideline into the end zone to Jamar Chase, who jumps up and catches it with one hand, his right hand. It was, I literally ran. I was watching and I jumped out of my seat and ran up to the television. That's how excited I was. It reminded me of the Odell Beckham catch when he was on the Giants against the Cowboys on Sunday night, like the iconic catch of his career. And I thought this was going to be Jamar Chase's version because it looks like he gets both feet in, touchdown. Bengals are going to be kicking the extra point to go up. It was an insane play. And the ref rules it out, and I'm like, no way, his feet were in, I saw them. And it goes, and it shows on replay. And I mean, he's out by a fraction of an inch. Think Kevin Durant on that three in game seven against Milwaukee two years ago. A great swing play in the NBA. It was out by that much. 
I'm like, holy shit, this is just, this is too much to take in my mind. This is insanity. Also interesting to note, in overtime, a play that sets up a potential game-winning field goal for Pittsburgh. Mitchell Trubisky just bombs one down the left sideline. Deontay Johnson makes an insane one-handed catch, who was initially ruled out, which goes to review. He is in by a fraction sliver of an inch. Two A++++ plays from both of these wideouts. One out by a fraction. One in by a fraction. I mean, the margins of this stuff, they are mind-boggling. Bengals end up scoring. Last play regulation. Well, essentially last play regulation. Two seconds to go. Pittsburgh, for whatever reason, chooses to play off coverage on Jamar Chase. They let him alone one-on-one on the right-hand side. That's probably not a good idea against the best receiver in football. He scores. Now you're like, oh, I'm celebrating because I'm like, this is perfect. I'm going to cash Pittsburgh plus seven and Cincy minus six in the second half. A, this A plus work, Chris Rall, you are the best gambler on planet Earth. All they have to do is kick a field goal. Evan McPherson, he's got ice in his veins. He's perfect. We saw all these kicks in last year's playoffs. He's got a reputation for a good reason. And they snap it and Minka Fitzpatrick runs in. The guy who's blocking on the left, furthest left side for Cincinnati. He's got two rushers on that side. He makes the fatal error of the the one thing that we know for any blocker in this situation is if there's two guys, you have to take the one with the quickest path to the kicker. It's blocking 101. And instead, he takes the outside guy, which leaves Minka Fitzpatrick coming on the inside. Now he is there and he is ready to block it. And he indeed blocks it. Insane, insane stuff. So now this game is being swung by one-handed catches and coaches not throwing challenge flags and great plays that aren't great plays, but maybe they are, but let's go to review and let's determine whether or not that occurred. And then guys can't block and then snappers can't snap as we see in overtime and then kickers sometimes miss as we see in overtime. This is what this stuff comes down to. Two times in overtime. First for Cincy, then for Pittsburgh. Opportunities to win. McPherson has a field goal to win it. They got a backup snapper in there who's just been struggling. He snaps a snap that was so bad on this kick that would have won the game that the holder almost misses it. He barely catches it. He gets it down. The laces are right at McPherson. He hits a duck hook that would just make any golfer shudder. I mean, it's so far into the hazard. It's so far out of bounds. You can't even describe it. Pittsburgh comes back. That Deontay Johnson catch sets up a Chris Boswell potential game-winning field goal that he drills the shit out of. It looks like it's going in and then it's knuckling in the air. It's, it's almost like the NFL somehow can press a button and set this stuff up for viewing thrills because it starts knuckling and it's moving left and right. And sometimes it's outside the, the pylon. Sometimes it's in or the field goal post, I mean. And at the very last second, it swings right at the field goal post and drills it and doesn't go in. I mean, this is the best television you can ever watch. I know we get sucked into the great British baking show or Survivor, The Bachelorette, or all these shitty shows that everybody consumes and goes, oh, you know, there's some stuff in there. Just watch the NFL. Go and watch college football. <laughs> you can't get anything better than this. You will run, you will literally run up to your television. I guarantee no Bachelor viewers jump out of their seat and run to the television like I was doing at multiple occasions in the last four minutes of regulation and in overtime in this game. Back and forth, back and forth. Pittsburgh gets the ball back. They drive into field goal range. Very last play of overtime. Boswell has an opportunity to win the game, 53 yards. He drills it. 1-0 Pittsburgh, 0-1-1 Cincy. It saved us from a second 2020 tie yesterday. The Texans and the Colts somehow played 
their way to a 2020 tie, including my favorite coaching decision of the day, which was right at the end of overtime, the Texans, who are so bad, who should do, be doing everything in their power to try and win one game. Be aggressive. They have a third and one on the 47. They run it. Oh, they get a little lost. Rex Burkhead. They can bring my old Cornhusker Rex Burkhead in to try and power through. Doesn't get it. Loses a yard or two. So now it's fourth and three. There's 20 seconds to go. And Lovey Smith, the old football graybeard, a literal graybeard. He sends out the punt. You know, let's secure this tie. Pin him deep, which he does. <laughs> he sends it deep. They secure the tie. Good. Just good stuff. I mean, A+. plus. Lovey Smith playing for a tie so emblematic of just the way that certain coaches want to be and the way that it can just, if you are a Texans fan and you truly care about winning this season, which probably most of them don't because they just know they're not that good. But if you truly cared, that would just melt you into a puddle. So they already tied 2020. Boswell comes in. If he misses, we have another 2020 tie. There's a million different crazy things and somehow we could end up at the tie and instead he drills it. The Steelers move on. This sport, both these sports, They are insane, and they are incredible as just viewing pleasures. Incredible. So let's go full circle. Let's return to where we started. Because now, after discussing the margins, I think it is appropriate to return to the quarterbacks. Burrow, as I mentioned, he was was everything. (laughs) He made some spectacular plays. He made a boatload of bad ones. Some of them I blame him for. Some of them I just said, look, this dude is under fire all day and I do not trust any quarterback to survive in this environment. Most, are, most if they are good, which I know Burrow is, they're going to probably put up a game like this where just you cannot stand up against this type of fire on every single play that you drop back to pass. Mitch Trubisky, he was, he was, and I say this as a compliment to Trubisky, he was completely blah, which is what he needs to be for Pittsburgh. Now, in Trubisky's defense, I think he could be a little bit more than blah, as he's been in the past with the Bears. But he was also under fire all day. Any drop back to pass, any running play for Najee Harris, who was gaining one yard of carry, who ended up getting injured. It wasn't happening because this Pittsburgh offensive line is much like the Bengals offensive line currently, about as bad as you can watch in football. So there's a lot going into each of these performances. Statistically, you go, okay, go and look at the box score for both these. Oh, okay. This game itself, it featured endless twists and turns. This is just the stuff that I talked about, whether it's Alabama, Texas, or whether it's Steelers, Bengals. I mean, these are just fractions of, if I wanted to, I could note literally the entire game of swing stuff, starting from the first quarter on. And this show would take six hours and you would all hate me and I would probably hate myself. Actually, no, I would probably enjoy it because I'm a pervert in that way, but you would all hate me. But the point is, when you get these games that are close, especially a game like Steelers-Bengals, it's going to be endless when it comes to twisting and turning. A change on an inch, many times a literal inch. You're talking one-handed catches for Chase or Deontay Johnson or these field goals that are missing by fractions of an inch. Changing an inch on any of these things would change the actual outcome of the game. And now, this is the full circle part. This is what we'll end the show on. And and down the road, when we are talking about why one quarterback is better than the other quarterback, why Brady is better than Rodgers, or why Brady is better than Manning or Drew Brees, or why 
Trubisky could be better than Burrow, or Burrow's better than Herbert, or Herbert's better than Mahomes, so on and so forth. When we're talking about that, and team win-loss is used to illustrate why, remember that this is what we are talking about. Thank you so much for listening to The Chris Rawl Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. It is good. It is a good day to be alive. It is a good day to be a football fan. NFL, college football, they're living up to the billing early on in the season. We got four more months of this. Hell yes. Please go and subscribe to my newsletter. I will be writing about the NFL and college. It's at chrisrawl.com. Go there. You can read any of my past newsletters. You will have it delivered to your inbox every Wednesday if you hit the subscribe button and put your email address in. Please, thank you. I'll be back on Friday to talk more football. Thanks again for listening.